0: This is section twenty of happy homes and the hearts that make them by samuel smiles this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter twenty duty truthfulness read by john greenman i slept and dreamt that life was beauty i woke and found that life was duty be not simply good be good for something thoreau the path of duty in this world is the road to salvation in the next jewish sage duty is a thing that is due and must be paid by every man who would avoid present discredit and eventual moral insolvency it is an obligation a debt which can only be discharged by voluntary effort and resolute action in the affairs of life duty embraces man's whole existence it begins in the home where there is the duty which children owe to their parents on the one hand and the duty which parents owe to their children on the other there are in like manner the respective duties of husbands and wives of masters and servants while outside the home There are duties which men and women owe to each other as friends and neighbors, as employers and employed, as governors and governed. Duty is based upon a sense of justice, justice inspired by love, which is the most perfect form of goodness. Duty is not a sentiment, but a principle pervading the life, and it exhibits itself in conduct and in acts which are mainly determined by man's conscience and free will the voice of conscience speaks in duty done and without its regulating and controlling influence the brightest and greatest intellect may be merely as a light that leads astray conscience sets a man upon his feet while his will holds him upright conscience is the moral governor of the heart the governor of right action, of right thought, of right faith, of right life, and only through its dominating influence can the noble and upright character be fully developed. The conscience, however, may speak never so loudly, but without energetic will it may speak in vain. The will is free to choose between the right course and the wrong one, but the choice is nothing unless followed by immediate and decisive action. If the sense of duty be strong, and the course of action clear, the courageous will, upheld by the conscience, enables a man to proceed on his course bravely, and to accomplish his purposes in the face of all opposition and difficulty, and should failure be the issue, there will remain at least this satisfaction that it has been in the cause of duty be and continue poor young man said heinzelman while others around you grow rich by fraud and disloyalty be without place or power while others beg their way upward bear the pain of disappointed hopes while others gain the accomplishment of theirs by flattery forego the gracious pressure of the hand for which others cringe and crawl wrap yourself in your own virtue and seek a friend and your daily bread if you have in your own cause grown gray with unbleached honor bless god and die when the marquis of pescara was entreated by the princes of italy to desert the spanish cause to which he was in honor bound his noble wife reminded him of his duty she wrote to him remember your honor WHICH RAISES YOU ABOVE FORTUNE AND ABOVE KINGS, BY THAT ALONE, AND NOT BY THE SPLENDOR OF TITLES, IS GLORY ACQUIRED, THAT GLORY WHICH IT WILL BE YOUR HAPPINESS AND PRIDE TO TRANSMIT UNSPOTTED TO YOUR POSTERITY. SUCH WAS THE DIGNIFIED VIEW WHICH SHE TOOK OF HER HUSBAND'S HONOR, AND WHEN HE FELL AT PAVIA, THOUGH YOUNG AND BEAUTIFUL, AND BESOUGHT BY MANY ADMIRERS, SHE BETOOK HERSELF TO SOLITUDE, that she might lament over her husband's loss and celebrate his exploits. To live really is to act energetically. Life is a battle to be fought valiantly. Inspired by high and honorable resolve, a man must stand to his post and die there if need be. Like the old Danish hero, his determination should be to dare nobly, to will strongly and never to falter in the path of duty. The power of will, be it great or small, which God has given us, is a divine gift, and we ought neither to let it perish for want of using, on the one hand, nor profane it by employing it for ignoble purposes on the other. Robertson of Brighton has truly said that man's real greatness consists not in seeking his own pleasure or fame or advancement, not that every one shall save his own life not that every man shall seek his own glory but that every man shall do his own duty what most stands in the way of the performance of duty is irresolution weakness of purpose and indecision on the one side are conscience and knowledge of good and evil on the other are indolence selfishness love of pleasure or passion the weak and ill-disciplined will may remain suspended for a time between these influences but at length the balance inclines one way or the other according as the will is called into action or otherwise if it be followed to remain passive the lower influence of selfishness or passion will prevail and thus manhood suffers abdication individuality is renounced character is degraded and the man permits himself to become the mere passive slave of his senses thus the power of exercising the will promptly in obedience to the dictates of conscience and thereby resisting the impulses of the lower nature is of essential importance in moral discipline and absolutely necessary for the development of character in its best forms to acquire the habit of well-doing to resist evil propensities to fight against sensual desires to overcome inborn selfishness may require a long and persevering discipline but when once the practice of duty is learned it becomes consolidated in habit and thenceforward is comparatively easy The valiant good man is he who, by the resolute exercise of his free will, has so disciplined himself as to have acquired the habit of virtue, as the bad man is he who, by allowing his free will to remain inactive, and giving the bridle to his desires and passions, has acquired the habit of vice, by which he becomes, at last, bound as by chains of iron. A man can only achieve strength of purpose by the action of his own free will. If he is to stand erect, it must be by his own efforts, for he cannot be kept propped up by the help of others. He is master of himself and of his actions. He can avoid falsehood and be truthful. He can shun sensualism and be continent. He can turn aside from doing a cruel thing and be benevolent and forgiving. All these lie within the sphere of individual efforts, and come within the range of self-discipline. And it depends upon men themselves whether in these respects they will be free, pure, and good on the one hand, or enslaved, impure, and miserable on the other. The sense of duty is a sustaining power even to a courageous man it holds him upright and makes him strong it was a noble saying of pompey when his friends tried to dissuade him from embarking for rome in a storm telling him that he did so at the great peril of his life it is necessary for me to go he said it is not necessary for me to live what it was right that he should do he would do in the face of danger and in defiance of storms let men of all ranks said plato whether they are successful or unsuccessful whether they triumph or not let them do their duty and rest satisfied what a lesson for future ages lies in these words as might be expected of the great washington the chief motive power in his life was the spirit of duty it was the regal and commanding element in his character which gave it unity compactness and vigor when he clearly saw his duty before him he did it at all hazards and with inflexible integrity he did not do it for effect nor did he think of glory or of fame and its rewards but of the right thing to be done and the best way of doing it yet washington had a most modest opinion of himself and when offered the chief command of the american patriot army He hesitated to accept it until it was pressed upon him when acknowledging in congress the honor which had been done him in selecting him to so important a trust on the execution of which the future of his country in a great measure depended washington said i beg it may be remembered lest some unlucky event should happen unfavorable to my reputation that i this day declare with the utmost sincerity i do not think myself equal to the command i am honored with and in his letter to his wife communicating to her his appointment as commander-in-chief he said i have used every endeavor in my power to avoid it not only from my unwillingness to part with you and the family but from the consciousness of its being a trust too great for my capacity and that i should enjoy more real happiness in one month with you at home than i have the most distant prospect of finding abroad if my stay were to be seven times seven years but as it has been a kind of destiny that has thrown me upon this service i shall hope that my undertaking it is designed for some good purpose it was utterly out of my power to refuse the appointment without exposing my character to such censures as would have reflected dishonor upon myself and given pain to my friends this i am sure could not and ought not to be pleasing to you and must have lessened me considerably in my own esteem washington pursued his upright course through life first as commander-in-chief and afterwards as president never faltering in the path of duty he had no regard for popularity but held to his purpose through good and through evil report often at the risk of his power and influence thus on one occasion when the ratification of a treaty arranged by mr jay with great britain was in question washington was urged to reject it but his honor and the honor of his country was committed and he refused to do so a great outcry was raised against the treaty and for a time washington was so unpopular that he is said to have been actually stoned by the mob But he nevertheless held it to be his duty to ratify the treaty and it was carried out in despite of petitions and remonstrances from all quarters while i feel he said in answer to the remonstrance the most lively gratitude for the many instances of approbation from my country i can no otherwise deserve it than by obeying the dictates of my conscience duty was the dominant idea in nelson's mind The spirit in which he served his country was expressed in the famous watchword, England expects every man to do his duty, signalled by him to the fleet before going into action at Trafalgar, as well as in the last words that passed his lips, I have done my duty, I praise God for it. And Nelson's companion and friend, the brave, sensible, homely-minded Collingwood, he who as his ship bore down into the great sea-fight said to his flag-captain just about this time our wives are going to church in england collingwood too was like his commander an ardent devotee of duty do your duty to the best of your ability was the maxim which he urged upon many young men starting on the voyage of life to a midshipman he once gave the following manly and sensible advice you may depend upon it, that it is more in your own power than in anybody else's, to promote both your comfort and advancement. A strict and unwearied attention to your duty, and a complacent and respectful behavior, not only to your superiors but to everybody, will ensure you their regard, and the reward will surely come. But if it should not, i am convinced you have too much good sense to let disappointment sour you guard carefully against letting discontent appear in you it will be sorrow to your friends a triumph to your competitors and cannot be productive of any good conduct yourself so as to deserve the best that can come to you and the consciousness of your own proper behavior will keep you in spirits if it should not come Let it be your ambition to be foremost in all duty. Do not be a nice observer of turns, but ever present yourself ready for everything, and, unless your officers are very inattentive men, they will not allow others to impose more duty on you than they should. It is a grand thing, after all, this pervading spirit of duty in a nation, and so long as it survives, no one need despair of its future but when it has departed or become deadened and been supplanted by thirst for pleasure or self-aggrandizement or glory then woe to that nation for its dissolution is near at hand duty is closely allied to truthfulness of character and the dutiful man is above all things truthful in his words as in his actions he stays and he does the right thing in the right way and at the right time there is probably no saying of lord chesterfield that commends itself more strongly to the approval of manly minded men than that it is truth that makes the success of the gentleman clarendon speaking of one of the noblest and purest gentlemen of his age says of falkland that he was so severe an adorer of truth that he could as easily have given himself leave to steal as to dissemble it was one of the finest things that mrs hutchinson could say of her husband that he was a thoroughly truthful and reliable man he never professed the thing he intended not nor promised what he believed out of his power nor failed in the performance of anything that was in his power to fulfill Wellington was a severe admirer of truth an illustration may be given when afflicted by deafness he consulted a celebrated orist, who after trying all remedies in vain determined as a last resource to eject into the ear a strong solution of caustic it caused the most intense pain but the patient bore it with his usual equanimity the family physician accidentally calling one day found the duke with flushed cheeks and bloodshot eyes and when he rose he staggered about like a drunken man the doctor asked to be permitted to look at his ear and then he found that a furious inflammation was going on which if not immediately checked must shortly reach the brain and kill him vigorous remedies were at once applied and the inflammation was checked but the hearing of that ear was completely destroyed. When the Orist heard of the danger his patient had run through the violence of the remedy he had employed, he hastened to Apsley House to express his grief and mortification. But the Duke merely said, "'Do not say a word more about it. You did all for the best.' The Orist said it would be his ruin when it became known that he had been the cause of so much suffering and danger to his grace but nobody need know anything about it keep your own counsel and depend upon it i won't say a word to any one then your grace will allow me to attend you as usual which will show the public that you have not withdrawn your confidence from me no replied the duke kindly but firmly i can't do that for that would be a lie he would not act a falsehood any more than he would speak one Another illustration of duty and truthfulness, as exhibited in the fulfillment of a promise, may be added from the life of Blücher. When he was hastening with his army over bad roads, to the help of Wellington, on the 18th of June, 1815, he encouraged his troops by words and gestures. "'Forward, children, forward!' "'It is impossible, it can't be done,' was the answer. Again and again he urged them, "'Children! we must get on you may say it can't be done but it must be done i have promised my brother wellington promised do you hear you wouldn't have me break my word and it was done truth is the very bond of society without which it must cease to exist and dissolve into anarchy and chaos a household cannot be governed by lying nor can a nation sir thomas Brown once asked do the devils lie no was his answer for then even hell could not subsist no consideration can justify the sacrifice of truth which ought to be sovereign in all the relations of life of all mean vices perhaps lying is the meanest it is in some cases the offspring of perversity and vice and in many others of sheer moral cowardice yet many persons think so lightly of it that they will order their servants to lie for them nor can they feel surprised if after such ignoble instruction they find their servants lying for themselves when pitt was in his last illness the news reached england of the great deeds of wellington in india the more i hear of his exploits said pitt The more i admire the modesty with which he receives the praises he merits for them he is the only man i ever knew that was not vain of what he had done and yet had so much reason to be so so it is said of faraday by professor tyndall that pretense of all kinds whether in life or in philosophy was hateful to him dr marshall hall was a man of like spirit courageously truthful dutiful and manly one of his most intimate friends has said of him that wherever he met with untruthfulness or sinister motive he would expose it saying i neither will nor can give my consent to a lie the question right or wrong once decided in his own mind the right was followed no matter what the sacrifice or the difficulty neither expediency nor inclination weighing one jot in the balance. There was no virtue that Dr. Arnold labored more sedulously to instill into young men than the virtue of truthfulness, as being the manliest of virtues, as indeed the very basis of all true manliness. He designated truthfulness as moral transparency, and he valued it more highly than any other quality. When lying was detected, he treated it as a great moral offense, but when a pupil made an assertion, he accepted it with confidence. If you say so, that is quite enough. Of course I believe your word. By thus trusting and believing them, he educated the young in truthfulness, the boys at length coming to say to one another, It's a shame to tell Arnold a lie. He always believes one one of the most striking instances that could be given of the character of the dutiful truthful laborious man is presented in the life of the late george wilson professor of technology in the university of edinburgh though we bring this illustration under the head of duty it might equally have stood under that of courage cheerfulness or industry for it is alike illustrative of these several qualities Wilson's life was indeed a marvel of cheerful laboriousness, exhibiting the power of the soul to triumph over the body, and almost to set it at defiance. It might be taken as an illustration of the saying of the wailing captain to Dr. Kane, as to the power of moral force over physical, "'Bless you, sir, the soul will any day lift the body out of its boots.' a fragile but bright and lively boy, he had scarcely entered manhood ere his constitution began to exhibit signs of disease. As early, indeed, as his seventeenth year, he began to complain of melancholy and of sleeplessness, supposed to be the effect of bile. I don't think I shall live long, he then said to a friend. My mind will—must—work itself out, and the body will soon follow it. A strange confession for a boy to make, but he gave his physical health no fair chance. His life was all brain work, study, and competition. When he took exercise, it was in sudden bursts, which did him more harm than good. Long walks in the highlands jaded and exhausted him, and he returned to his brainwork unrested and unrefreshed. It was during one of his forced walks of some 24 miles in the neighborhood of Stirling that he injured one of his feet, and he returned home seriously ill. The result was an abscess, disease of the ankle joint, and long agony, which ended in the amputation of the right foot. But he never relaxed in his labors. He was now writing, lecturing, and teaching chemistry rheumatism and acute inflammation of the eye next attacked him and were treated by cupping and blistering unable himself to write he went on preparing his lectures which he dictated to his sister pain haunted him day and night and sleep was only forced by morphia while in this state of general prostration symptoms of pulmonary disease began to show themselves yet he continued to give the weekly lectures to which he stood committed to the Edinburgh School of Arts. Not one was shirked, though their delivery before a large audience was a most exhausting duty. "'Well, there's another nail put into my coffin,' was the remark made on throwing off his overcoat on returning home, and a sleepless night almost invariably followed. At twenty-seven, Wilson was lecturing ten, eleven, or more hours weekly, usually with setons, or open blister wounds, upon him—his bosom friends, he used to call them. He felt the shadow of death upon him, and he worked as if his days were numbered. Don't be surprised, he wrote to a friend, if any morning at breakfast you hear that I am gone. But while he said so, he did not in the least degree indulge in the feeling of sickly sentimentality he worked on as cheerfully and hopefully as if in the very fullness of his strength to none said he is life so sweet as to those who have lost all fear to die sometimes he was compelled to desist from his labors by sheer debility occasioned by loss of blood from the lungs but after a few weeks rest and change of air he would return to his work saying the water is rising in the well again though disease had fastened on his lungs and was spreading there and though suffering from a distressing cough he went on lecturing as usual to add to his troubles when one day endeavoring to recover himself from a stumble occasioned by his lameness he overstrained his arm and broke the bone near the shoulder but he recovered from his successive accidents and illnesses in the most extraordinary way the reed bent but did not break the storm passed and it stood erect as before there was no worry or fever nor fret about him but instead cheerfulness patience and unfailing perseverance his mind amidst all his sufferings remained perfectly calm and serene he went about his daily work with an apparently charmed life as if he had the strength of many men in him yet all the while he knew he was dying his chief anxiety being to conceal his state from those about him at home to whom the knowledge of his actual condition would have been inexpressibly distressing i am cheerful among strangers he said and try to live day by day as a dying man he went on teaching as before lecturing to the architectural institute and to the school of arts one day after a lecture before the latter institute he lay down to rest and was shortly awakened by the rupture of a blood vessel which occasioned him the loss of a considerable quantity of blood he appeared at the family meals as usual and next day he lectured twice punctually fulfilling his engagements but the exertion of speaking was followed by a second attack of hemorrhage He now became seriously ill, and it was doubted whether he would survive the night. But he did survive, and during his convalescence he was appointed to an important public office, that of Director of the Scottish Industrial Museum, which involved a great amount of labor, as well as lecturing, in his capacity of Professor of Technology, which he held in connection with the office. From this time forward his Dear Museum, as he called it, absorbed all his surplus energies while busily occupied in collecting models and specimens for the museum he filled up his odds and ends of time in lecturing to ragged schools ragged kirks and medical missionary societies he gave himself no rest either of mind or body and to die working was the fate he envied his mind would not give in but his poor body was forced to yield, and a severe attack of hemorrhage, bleeding from both lungs and stomach, compelled him to relax his labors. For a month or some forty days, he wrote, a dreadful Lent, the wind has blown geographically from Araby the blessed, but thermometrically from Iceland the accursed. I have been made a prisoner of war, hit by an icicle in the lungs, and have shivered and burned alternately for a large portion of the last month, and spit blood till I grew pale with coughing. Now I am better, and to-morrow I give my concluding lecture, thankful that I have contrived, notwithstanding all my troubles, to carry on without missing a lecture to the last day of the faculty of arts to which I belong. How long was it to last? he himself began to wonder for he had long felt his life as if ebbing away at length he became languid weary and unfit to work even the writing of a letter cost him a painful effort and he felt as if to lie down and sleep were the only things worth doing yet shortly after to help a sunday-school he wrote his five gateways of knowledge as a lecture and afterwards expanded it into a book he also recovered strength sufficient to enable him to proceed with his lectures to the institutions to which he belonged, besides, on various occasions, undertaking to do other people's work. I am looked upon as good as mad, he wrote to his brother, because, on a hasty notice, I took a defaulting lecturer's place at the philosophical institution and discoursed on the polarization of light. But I like work it is a family weakness then followed sleepless nights days of pain and more spitting of blood my only painless moments he says were when lecturing in this state of prostration and disease the indefatigable man undertook to write the life of edward forbes and he did it like everything he undertook with admirable ability he proceeded with his lectures as usual To an association of teachers, he delivered a discourse on the educational value of industrial science. After he had spoken to his audience for an hour, he left them to say whether he should go on or not, and they cheered him on to another half-hour's address. It is curious, he wrote, the feeling of having an audience, like clay in your hands, to mold for a season as you please. It is a terribly responsible power. I do not mean for a moment to imply that I am indifferent to the good opinion of others, far otherwise, but to gain this is much less a concern with me than to deserve it. It was not so once. I had no wish for unmerited praise, but I was too ready to settle that I did merit it. Now the word duty seems to me the biggest word in the world, and is uppermost in all my serious doings. This was written only about four months before his death a little later he wrote i spin my thread of life from week to week rather than from year to year constant attacks of bleeding from the lungs sapped his little remaining strength but did not altogether disable him from lecturing he was amused by one of his friends proposing to put him under trustees for the purpose of looking after his health but he would not be restrained from working so long as a vestige of strength remained. One day, in the autumn of 1859, he returned from his customary lecture in the University of Edinburgh with a severe pain in his side. He was scarcely able to crawl upstairs, medical aid was sent for, and he was pronounced to be suffering from pleurisy and inflammation of the lungs. His enfeebled frame was unable to resist so severe a disease, and he sank. Peacefully to the rest he so longed for after a few days' illness. Wrong not the dead with tears. A glorious bright to morrow endeth a weary life of pain and sorrow. End of chapter 20. Duty Truthfulness. Read by John Greenman.